So as I said, for those of you guys who don't know me, um, my name's Taylor, and I'll share a bit more about myself in just a, a couple of minutes. Um, but first I wanted to introduce the topic for tonight. Our topic is, is atheism reasonable? <laughs> now oftentimes people ask, um, you know, is, is it reasonable to be religious? Is it reasonable to have religious belief? And uh, I think that's a fair question to ask, even for the religious person. Um, I, I think doubt is not always a bad thing. So um, I've heard the analogy before that doubt um, is kind of like a, your immune system for beliefs. Um, and if you didn't have any doubts about anything, um, then you would just believe the first thing that was ever presented to you, you know? And so how do we deliberate? How do we distinguish between something that's worth believing in and something that's not? Um, we do that because we doubt things that we don't think are believable, right? And so um, doubt has an important function. So I think it's worthwhile to ask, um, is religious belief reasonable? But I, I think we don't oftentimes turn that question around and ask, is atheism reasonable? And so um, we save all our doubt for faith and we never get around to doubting the doubter, so to speak. Um, so this is the plan for tonight. I'm going to present a, a brief but I hope mean, meaningful sketch of um, two of the most common forms of atheism. In fact, uh, almost all people that I've ever met that have been atheists would probably fit under one or both of these headings. Um, and then I'm going to explore some rational critiques of each, and then I'll stick around um, after your time at table groups. In case anybody has any questions that they just want to ask me since I'm giving this presentation, I would love to do a Q&A, but this is probably the longest talk that I'm going to do of the talks that I'm doing. Um, and, uh, and so uh, I, I want to make sure you have some time to discuss it at your table groups. So this will actually be part one of two talks. Um, the next talk that I'll give next week will build on this, and um, we're going to be discussing Christianity and Eastern pantheistic monism, which is uh, kind of a fancy word for the philosophical system that underlies Hinduism and Buddhism. And so we'll be talking about those two. So this week we're talking about atheism. Next week we'll be talking a little bit about religious beliefs, and we'll be looking at two more worldviews, all right? So... Um, Lecture format, there's a lot to cover. Um, get your minds ready. Um, I'm going to pass out a handout in a little bit, but it's just it's got a lot of stuff on it, so I think it'll be distracting if I do it immediately. But um, just so you know, um, most of the stuff, um, uh, kind of some of the main things that, are, um, that I'm going to be discussing here tonight um, are going to be on this handout. So, so that's that. <clears throat> yeah, not what's next okay. next week, two weeks from now. Okay. That's right. Thank you. Good good clarification question. <clears throat> All right. Um, I also just want to say something real quick about the vibe of these gatherings. So of course we're meeting at a church, and, and I know that many of you are Christians, uh, but food for thought is meant to be a gathering where um, skeptics or or Muslims or Buddhists or whatever are welcome. And they're welcome to come here and truly participate and truly ask the questions that they have. And um, so if, if we're going to do that, uh, or, or even if you just, you're just completely turned off to organized religion and you find yourself here. Um, but if we're going to do that, um, that means that there needs to be an, envi an environment of tolerance and respect. And I, I guess I just want to say, when it, when it comes to the word tolerance... Um, I don't think that means that everyone is right about everything. <laughs> Like, that's not what tolerance means. Um, the philosopher William Lane Craig says, 
that um, true tolerance is not about agreeing with everyone else. On the contrary, it's, uh, the concept of tolerance assumes disagreement. Because otherwise, what are you tolerating? <laughs> right? If you're on the same page with somebody, what are you tolerating? So, um, I, but I, so I think true tolerance also has to do with the ability to disagree peacefully and respectfully. And that's kind of the vibe that we want to go through um, at these gatherings. Does that sound good? All right, cool. Um, I, I just want to say one more thing about tolerance. I also think it, it implies a certain measure of like humility about the truth. So I think most of us like to think of ourselves as being open-minded. But in reality, when we get in a, into a disagreement with someone, we're usually like more focused on winning rather than learning. Is anybody else in that boat too? Like, I've definitely been in that boat. So, um, for all of us tonight, the qu- a question that I'd, that I'd have is, are we willing to change our minds if our thinking is proven to be irrational? Um, or do we dogmatically cling to an illogical position out of pride, wishful thinking, or sentimentality? That's not, that's not the kind of truth that we want. We want the kind of truth that can take some good questions. Right? Okay, so I, I said I would share a little bit about um, who I am and just, just kind of my personal story. But since I'm going to be talking about a, loft, a bunch of lofty ideas, it might be helpful for you to kind of get, get a little sense of my journey. So, of course, I'm a pastor now, um, but it's important for you to know maybe that um, I wasn't actually brought up in church. Um, I, I did believe in God. Um, at a young age, as I think actually most kids do, I think the concept of God is, is a primitively compelling concept. Um, it's it's uh, very easy for children to believe in that. I think it's actually kind of natural. Um, and so that was the case for me. This um, idea of God was a powerful idea, but I didn't really grow up in organized religion. The first time that I ever really truly checked out a church um, and hung around was in high school. And uh, I was really super intrigued by Jesus. I was really intrigued by the person of Jesus. But um, at the same time, um, I would try to ask my good questions to the church, and it, um, and it wasn't, those questions weren't always invited. <laughs> so it wasn't always a safe place to ask skeptical questions uh, if you were an inquiring mind, or to be, or to be a skeptic that, that, that's not sure exactly what you think yet. So... Um, Later on, I went to college, and I was majoring in business management, but I took this class um, called Disturbing Philosophical Questions, and uh, it was an awesome class, and in the class, we discussed, you know, does God exist? Does God not exist? Is there such a thing as free will? Is there not? You know, is, is, is man more like a machine? You know, is there an objective standard of right and wrong? And uh, I just, I was like a fish in water, like I loved it. I was like, these are the kinds of things that I've always wanted to talk about. And my professor was really skillful at facilitating dialogue. And I remember, um, um, I still was intrigued by Jesus, but I said, all right, I, this, is, this is my chance. I'm going to really seek the truth here. And I adopted Socrates' maxim, if you've ever heard him, his quote, the unexamined life is not worth living, Socrates says. The unexamined life is not worth living. And so I said, I'm going to examine my life. I'm going to examine my beliefs. I'm going to suspend previous beliefs as best I can on politics and science and religion, um, the authority of the Bible. Uh, you know, th- there was a lot of things actually about the Bible that I didn't want to be true anyway. <laughs> um, and so, um, 
So I resolved to deeply investigate these questions. And so I was reading things like Plato and Nietzsche and Marx and Kant. And uh, I picked up a religious studies minor and I started visiting like alternate places of worship. I, I checked out a Jewish synagogue and um, started reading the Quran and visited a Unitarian church and tried Zen meditation. I was just sort of seeking. But at the same time, um, even though I found like a lot of beauty and truth, if I was being honest with myself, I also found things that I really disagreed with. I found selfishness. Oftentimes I found contradictions. Um, and many of the ideas that I'll talk about in this seminar are things that I learned during this like really critical and formative time of seeking truth in my life. <clears throat> I also um, continued to be very, very intrigued by Jesus. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you more about that on another week. Um, <laughs> Later on, I moved to Pittsburgh to study theology, but it's important to admit that I'm not an expert on all things related to philosophy and religion. In fact, there are some people sitting here that are probably more experts than me. Um, I've just, I'm just a guy that spent a lot of time reading and thinking and dialoguing with people of other faiths. Um, I met with a Muslim for 10 months, and we were looking at the Bible and the Quran and discussing that together and building a friendship. Those are the kinds of things that I did for just many years of my life. And I still consider myself to be a seeker of truth. Um, so, as I mentioned, uh, that's just a little bit of my story. As I mentioned, the topic tonight is atheism reasonable. And you're going to need to buckle up, because this is, this is uh, probably some of the um, kind of heaviest content that you'll get in these, in these weeks for Food for Thought. Um, and as I mentioned, we're going to be looking at two popular forms of atheism. And just to give them um, some names, the first is naturalism. <laughs> And the second is postmodernism, and um, I want to I want to draw a picture um, that might help me to explain some things later on. And um, some philosophers have said you can basically boil down um, all philosophies into one of three worldviews. And so um, the first is um, a top-down view of truth, and so. Um, you're a human being, and you believe God, or the gods, or the Tao, or whatever, gives you, provides you truth, provides you with perspective, and then you interpret the world around you through that. So that's a top-down perspective on truth. And uh, like a, a thinker that that would be indicative of is, is Plato. Um, now, um, Aristotle, who was a disciple of Plato... Um, began to tease out another view that didn't really fully flower until the scientific enlightenment. Um, and, but he said to Plato, no, it's not, um, it's not that you have a perfect concept of a rock or a perfect concept of a horse or a perfect concept of a dog and then you interpret the world through that concept. You're gathering facts from the world around you and coming to an understanding of a dog or a chair or, or whatever and that's how you're coming to, to greater knowledge. So, um, you know, Aristotle would, would focus on, um, he still believed in, in supernatural reality, but he believed it was a, it was a bottom-up uh, view of the truth. So you start by observing the world around you, and um, through reason and through observation of the world around you, um, you can come to some sort of understanding of morality and truth and God or the gods or, or, or whatever. And so that's, um, that's Aristotle. Um, and as I said, that was, that was much more fleshed out later. Um, and then there's a third view um, 
I would say that it's, um, in, in some sense, it's relatively new in history, although there's nothing new under the sun. You can find a lot of this stuff even in the ancient philosophers. But um, I, I would say, in, in some ways, um, Soren Kierkegaard is perhaps the father of um, existentialism. And um, he basically would say to Aristotle <clears throat> the same thing that Aristotle said to Plato, which is he would say... Um, no, it's, it's not that you have direct access to the world around you. What, what's really at the center of this whole thing is just your perspective. And so he would say, um, the center of understanding truth about the world or God or gods or the Tao or whatever, or morality, starts with understanding that you're a subjective individual and you don't have direct access to these truths, and you don't have even direct access to the world. Now, interestingly, um, Soren Kierkegaard was a Christian, um, but a lot of atheist existentialists would take his ideas in different ways in the decades that would follow Kierkegaard. But roughly speaking, you could call these three views. This is a pre-modern view of philosophy. Uh, this is a pre-modern philosophy. Um, this is what most people would call modern, and this is what most people would call postmodern. And I'll flesh that out a little bit later. But, but that might help you to understand um, that when we're talking about these ideas, we're, we're talking about um, almost like you can think of a worldview um, not just as like a, a sheet of things that you believe on a piece of paper, like a creed that you would like check off and say, yeah, I, I agree with that. Your worldview is like the lens of your eye through which you see everything. Um, and oftentimes it's so close to you, you didn't, you know, there's a bunch of people who are like, I never realized I was pre-modern. You know, I never realized I was post-modern, but there's a way in which that lens is filtering everything that they know. So, um, so let's, let's talk a little bit about naturalism. So naturalism is a very popular form of atheism. It's uh, rooted in the 17th century scientific enlightenment, even further back to some extent in Aristotle. Um, though most scientists during the 17th century Enlightenment were not atheists. So Isaac Newton, who's perhaps the most famous scientist of that time, was a devout Christian. He was also a theologian. Um, and uh, indeed, in our own day, I think it's really important to mention, um, because uh, oftentimes religion and science are sort of played off each other, as if, like, if, if you believe in science, you can only believe in science, um, to quote from Nacho Libre. Um, but, uh, you know, there are plenty of... Um, world-renowned scientists um, that are theists, that believe in God. I think of Francis Collins, who, who, um, who helped map the human genome. Um, the, the fourth talk, when we talk about um, do miracles and science contradict one another, I'm actually going to phone in a friend, so we're going to watch a, a, an expert actually talk about that topic, because I just don't have the scientific chops for that, but um, it's going to be a really good talk. But so, so there's plenty of, of scientists then and now. Indeed, the Enlightenment and, and, and scientific knowledge, the growth of that, grew out of um, a society that had a Christian worldview. Um, there's reasons for that. We won't go into that tonight. But um, so, yeah, um, just to, so which kind, of, which kind of worldview is naturalism? Is it pre-modern, modern, or post-modern? Modern. Right, yeah, right, exactly. So it's a, so it's a modern worldview. It's a very dominant worldview uh, in the university um, among professors and students alike. Um, it's, it's um, yeah, so, so just, just to mention a few core beliefs of naturalism. The first is that matter is all that exists. 
Um, so naturalists say there's no God, gods, there's no Tao, there's no platonic forms or anything like that. Okay, so matter, <laughs> that's it. All right. The second is that um, the universe and everything in it exists in a uniform system of cause and effect. So matter is all that exists, but, there's, but there's, there seems to be kind of laws governing what that matter is able to do. Third, human beings are basically, from this view, something like complex machines that are part of the larger machine, which is the universe. And human personality, what we would call human personality, is only an interrelation of chemical properties that we don't fully understand yet. Um, so it can be reduced to that. The fourth thing is that um, we can know truths about the universe only through human reason and the senses, which are jointly used together for scientific observation. So that's just a just kind of a brief sketch on what naturalism is. <clears throat> um, now I think naturalism is a tempting worldview for two reasons. First, um, to many people it seems very simple and coherent, um, but also it. it I think it gives the impression of like being honest and objective. Um, but as many people before me have pointed out, there are at least four big problems that are not often talked about um, by our professors. And oftentimes, um, some of our best scientists have never studied philosophy or religion thoroughly enough to understand some of these kind of like meta-beliefs underneath their scientific methods and stuff like that. Um, so these, these things aren't often talked about. So we'll explore each of these four problems in some detail. So the first is um, the problem of freedom. And um, so the idea is, if man is nothing more than a complex, sort of a complex machine governed by the laws of science, then there's no such thing as real freedom to choose. Instead, we only have sort of the appearance of freedom, and this is only because we haven't figured out the sort of complex concoction of nature and nurture um, that direct um, uh, the way that we act and, and all that we do. Um, and so I, I'm, not, I'm not just bringing up this critique out of like a Christian bias. Many re renowned atheists have actually admitted this point. So um, the famous behavioral psychologist B.F. Skinner um, uh, was, you know, wrote a book on this and he was not very popular for saying, hey, we actually have no freedom. Um, if, if we really, um, you know, had a brain big enough, we could perceive that, that we're, we're not actually exercising real choices and real freedom. Um, Nietzsche, actually, there's a cool quote by him to uh, demonstrate this, another atheist. He said, um, if one were omniscient, one would be able to calculate each individual human action in advance. Each step in the progress of knowledge, each error, each act of malice. So think about it, just pausing for a second. Think about it as like, if I roll a marble and it hits another marble, that marble roll, rolls. That's a, that's a simple thing, right? Um, you know, if two, if two single-celled or, or, you know, organisms that don't have very many cells, if, if, if they have a certain chemical reaction, they're going to, you know, be repelled by that or attracted to one another and they'll duplicate or whatever. There's no real choice in that, right? Um, and, and what he's trying to say is that um, because we arose out of that, we're just a, a much more complex version of that, that we don't completely understand why we react the way we do, but we're certainly reacting just as much um, on the basis of instinct um, or on the basis of, of sort of uh, pure chemical reaction, even though we have this thing that's kind of complex compared to uh, most of the rest of what we observe. 
which is our mind, and it appears that we have choices. Um, even our choice to believe in God or not to believe in God, he would say, we're not, we're not actually technically free to, to choose that. So he says, to be sure, the acting man is caught in the illusion of volition, so the illusion of free will. But if the wheel of the world were to stand still for a moment and an omniscient, calculating mind were there to take advantage of this interruption, he would be able to tell into the farthest future of each being and describe every rut that wheel will roll upon. The acting man's delusion about himself, his assumption that free will exists, is also part of that calculating mechanism. So he's saying our feeling that we actually have free will and can choose things um, is, is, is actually just a part of the same mechanism. It's a part of the same machine. For some reason, it's, it's an adaptable response for us to feel and to think that way. Um, but we're still a part of just the chemical universe in such a way that what we do is just cause and effect. Now, a popular rebuttal of this argument is um, the rebuttal that, well, well, there's such a thing as chance. Um, you know, New Newtonian physics, it was pretty robotic, but science has now demonstrated that on a micro level, um, much more seems random or, or inexplicable. Um, does this make room for freedom? And on a closer examination, um, I, I think the answer is no, it doesn't. Um, and I say this for two reasons. One, um, chance may not actually exist. It might just be uh, a fancy name that we give something uh, for a process that we don't yet understand. Um, and then two, even if such a thing as random chance does exist, it still doesn't lead to freedom. So think of the difference between like a plane that's been set to autopilot. Okay, that plane's going to go where it's been set to. There's no freedom. And I think, for, for example, a plane where, where there's just chance and it's just flying in every random direction, and there's no rhyme or reason to it, that's still not freedom, right? So just because there's such a thing as chance, it doesn't mean that somehow free will is introduced into the equation. It's just random. Um, all right, the second critique of naturalism, um, and I'll talk a little bit more about this than postmodernism because it, it, it actually sets up postmodernism in a way, <clears throat> is uh, the second critique is the problem of right and wrong. And I, I think the first thing to say is that um, these, these problems build off of one another. So, um, you know, first of all, if freedom doesn't exist, as Nietzsche said and Skinner maintained, then, then most moral distinctions, uh, excuse me, then moral distinctions are also meaningless. So think about it. If people only appear to be free, but really they aren't, you can't tell a non-free being what they ought to have done, Right? That's, that's, uh, you know, but on the other hand, morality assumes freedom. Morality assumes a freedom to, cho to choose. Um, but besides the point about freedom, there's a second reason why naturalism creates a problem of right and wrong. Because the natural universe is actually silent about morality. Now, um, some might dispute, well, it's not completely silent because we have this thing called conscience, and that's actually a classic argument for the existence of God. But from the standpoint of a naturalistic framework where all we have is the physical world and it's this you know, bound thing of cause and effects, um, we, we don't view that as some sort of you know, uh, inner thing that's pointing to something transcendent. It's just something that's going on in us. So um, we can't, uh, you know, can, can we learn about right and wrong by looking in a telescope? You know, by looking at something in a telescope? No. Why? Because all, by all standards of morality, the universe is both cruel and non-cruel, right? In other words, you can't arrive at what ought to be um, based simply on what is, based simply on what is the case. 
So human beings um, both lie and tell the truth. They both murder and forgive. They both discover the cure for malaria, and they invent new and creative ways to traffic other human beings, right? Um, All of these are actually genuine anthropological human behaviors. And so if that's just what it is to be a human, you can't tell a human, you shouldn't do that because we're just dealing out the cards that nature has given us, right? So um, from this framework we lose any objective standard for judging what we mean when we say that an action is right or wrong. And morality becomes like a tree with no roots. So, um, and a, a classic example of this is um, uh, the, the serial killer, Ted Bundy, um, used to tape himself interviewing his victims um, before he would rape and murder them. And, um, and there was, there's one uh, tape where he's lecturing this woman and he says, like, Surely in this age of scientific enlightenment, you can't tell me that there's something objectively wrong with the pleasure that I derive from what I'm about to do to you any more than there's something objectively wrong with somebody else enjoying a ham sandwich. So this, this is, you know, I mean, you know, this philosophical, you know, lecture before he's about to do this heinous act. But this is a very common uh, moral theory. Um, uh, now, there, there's an there's a ethical theory uh, called emotivism, which says that moral convictions are nothing more than our emotional reactions to things, our emo- emotional reactions to certain things. So that's often called the boo-hooray theory of morality. It's like, um, I say boo that you stole that from me, but you say hooray. <laughs> um, who's right, who's wrong? Well, there's, there's no transcendent, there's no being or Tao or force or whatever that's over us, that's deciding who's right or wrong in that. My conscience says that I could never do what Ted Bundy did, um, but his conscience allowed it. His conscience said, hooray, your conscience might say boo. Um, Now, I just want to give a caveat that in arguing that naturalism leads to a morally neutral world, I don't mean to imply that all atheists are immoral people. I mean, of course not. That's, that's not. That's not the point. There are extremely benevolent people that would claim to be atheists, just like there are extremely corrupt people that would claim to be Christians. And the fact is, um, the fact is, 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 is um, it's, it's sort of unlivable for most human beings, unless you're a complete sociopath, to live as if there's actually no objective standard to morality. Um, so few naturalists lead lifestyles that reflect the reality that their worldview implies that there's no freedom or morality or will get to meaning, most still attempt to live meaningful lifestyles and um, abide by traditional moral standards of right and wrong, in spite of the fact that those concepts are actually nowhere to be found in their, in their view of the world. Um, and so why is this the case? Um, well, uh, you can almost think about, um, Tim Keller uses the analogy of, um, uh, he, 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 says, he says that, um, uh, a lot of our morality nowadays is still rooted in this sort of Judeo-Christian Muslim inheritance of Western culture. Um, and, uh, and so we're, we still kind of uh, mostly agree with the right and wrongs that, that were dealt to us by those religions, by those worldviews. Um, but he said it's almost like um, we're writing the moral checks of those religious systems, but we no longer believe the bank exists. Um, and he said, eventually there becomes a disintegration of morality as more and more people are cued into the fact that it's actually just whatever I want. 
It's actually just whatever I decide. And I, I actually believe that, that that's, that's become um, much more indicative of, of the way that people are talking about morality, more so today even than 20 years ago. Um, I can't go that far back because I'm not that old. But um, um, So um, I'm going to skip that. Uh, so third, the problem of meaning. I think this, this one is, is, um, is probably the most self-evident. If you believe that matter is all that exists and we're just matter moving matter, then there's no objective or transcendent meaning in the world. Um, now, people will say, yeah, but, well, we make our own meaning, you know? Um, and I, I feel like that's the end of, like, um, a, a lot of, like, Hollywood movies, especially cartoons, it's like, you know, I realized I needed to find my own way. You know, I realized I needed to make my own meaning. I, I realized I needed to, like, create my own identity or something like that. Um, so we, we would say, yeah, yeah, um, you know, we make our own meaning, and then um, we can decide to manufacture what's meaningful for us. This is what secular existentialism is all about. Like, owning with your whole being and your whole self the choices that you've made. Um, but this, this view actually leads to some disturbing consequences. So, for example, I think most people, religious, secular, or otherwise, would, would think about somebody like Mother Teresa who spent her whole life rescuing poor people out of the gutters in Calcutta and seeing that people died not lonely and, and a, death, a, a death with dignity and that they're loved uh, in the latter days of their life. Um, you, you'd have to look at somebody like Mother Teresa and be like, look at that meaning she found. That's so cool. That's so meaningful. On the other hand, you know, you have a, you have a, a man uh, who's, uh, you know, in his late 30s that spends 14 hours a day playing video games. You know, and it has caused his marriage to fall apart, and he's neglected his kids. And uh, but hey, look, this is a really engaging video game, and he's finding a lot of meaning in his own mind here. And now I, I, I you know, we say, you know, oh, okay, well, how do we compare these two? Right? They both found something that was meaningful to them. Um, but which one do you want your kid to grow up and be like? Um, maybe neither. <laughs> so, some of us would be tentative about sending our kids off to Calcutta, but I think we would recognize that it's a morally superior um, life. Um, and um, even if we want to, even if we want to say, okay, well, I could see that there'd be no basis be, be, between deciding it, um, and and maybe it would be wrong then to to project and tell somebody that they should be this way. I'm just going to do what I want to do. I'm not going to project that on somebody. These things start to change the second that you have you have kids, or you're the boss of somebody, or you have some sort of responsible responsibility over some other human life. Um, because then you have to start saying, okay, what's a responsible way to exercise and use the authority that I've been given? Um, now, some naturalists, and um, I, I think most people don't really want to look at this issue um, when, when, they're, when most atheists don't really want to look at this issue. Um, it's a tough issue to, to face. But um, I, you know, some, some naturalists are willing to bite the bullet. I, I listened to a radio interview with Richard Dawkins one time, and uh, he said, um, the universe doesn't owe us meaning, you know? Um, and I, I think that um, that's like at least very honest of him. But... Um, I think in light of this, thinking back to the quote from Socrates, the unexamined life is not worth living. Well, I actually think for the, for the atheistic naturalist, that isn't true. For them, 
It's the unexamined life is the only life worth living. Because if you start actually examining what are the implications of your worldview, all of a sudden meaning and morality and freedom and all these things begin to disintegrate around you. Now, um, I think a critique you could have of my critiques at this point is that up to this point, my critiques of naturalism, while they might be like existentially troubling for human beings at, the cor- at, like, at a core level really, um, the problem of freedom and the problem of right and wrong and the problem of meaning... Um, while these are no minor matters, um, we haven't actually demonstrated any rational contradiction with the natural world, naturalist worldview. And so that brings us to our fourth critique, which is the problem of knowing. Problem of knowing. So Charles Darwin once said this. He said, um, as he was reflecting on his system of thinking about naturalistic evolution, everything on Earth, uh, you know, um, evolved from a single cell organism. And especially later on, I, I think there's some controversy over what his actual views about God were, but especially that being combined later on with the idea that there's no God, no supernatural, no nothing like that. He said, The horrid doubt always arises whether the convictions of man's mind, which has developed from the mind of lower animals, are of any value or at all trustworthy. That's something to lay in bed at night thinking about. <laughs> um, in other words, why should we believe that the motions of atoms in our brain, which constitute reason and the senses, have any relation to truth whatsoever? So this argument has been skillfully made uh, by a philosopher named Alvin Plantinga. Um, and this is probably, you want to key in, because this is maybe the most complex uh, argument that I'm going to make tonight. Um, but his basic point is that Evolutionary biology relies on adaptable behaviors, not true beliefs. So in order for a, a, for a being to survive, in order for a, a creature to survive and kind of adapt, you know, and, and kind of continue to exist, it has to adapt. But those adaptations don't have to be based on true beliefs at all. So from, from this view, human reason does not arise in order to connect us with actual truth, the way that like a Christian theist or a Muslim would think, oh, we have reason, and God gave us reason, and he's not trying to deceive us with that reason. Um, and so he's, he's giving us a tool to understand true things. Um, but from this standpoint, human reason doesn't arise in order to connect us with actual truth. It merely arises in order to make us more adaptable creatures in the world. So for the sole purpose of survival. But the problem is, is we could conceive of a world in which there are creatures um, that, like us, you know, that have this thing, like something like what we call reason, which supplies false beliefs, but false beliefs which are nonetheless highly adaptable to their environment. Well, how do we know we're not describing our world? <laughs> right? If that's possible, how do we know we're not describing our world? So, so the first example that Planning gives, and, and it's, kind of, it's kind of a funny, it's kind of a silly example, but... He says, when it, comes, when it comes to the relationship between human beings and tigers, um, the adaptable behavior is to run away and hide. Um, but he said, you could, you could actually um, arrive at that behavior from any, any number of false beliefs. So you might think, I actually want to pet that tiger because I think it's cute, but I think the best way to do that is to hide in the cave over there. Right? So that, that's kind of an absurd thing. It's a false belief, but it's an adaptable behavior. And the, the, thing, the thing about it is, 
the, the only thing that we need to survive and to continue to adapt is adaptable behaviors. Our beliefs don't have to actually ride in tandem. True beliefs don't have to ride in tandem with adapt, adaptable behavior. So that's a little silly, but here's one that's maybe a little closer to home. Um, so um, uh, all atheist Richard Dawkins would would admit that human beings have a natural propensity toward being religious. So that's just most human beings in the history of the world, by far, 99 point whatever percent, have been religious in some sort of way. I mean, it's, it's, it's probably less of a percentage now than it's ever been, but a, a very, very high percentage. Maybe not 99.9 something, but, but very high. Um, so they say, yeah, humans have a natural um, tendency to be religious. And naturalists would say, yeah, that's because um, religions represent a system of belief that, um, while they may be widespread are nonetheless false. However, if they're widespread, then religious beliefs at some point must have been adaptable. There must have been some sort of reason why we had religious beliefs that made it you know, somehow uh, easier for us to survive or better for us to survive. And if an atheist believes that religious beliefs are somehow adaptable, but also false, then we've proven planting his point. Right? That from a naturalistic perspective, our beliefs can't be trusted. Because it's all about, our minds are all about thinking whatever's going to help us make the most adaptable move next. So, um, how do we know that naturalism, for example, isn't simply the next system of belief to be shown to be adaptable, but not true? Um, and Pl Plantinga um, actually like makes a math equation out of this, and he says, you know, what is the probability... Um, uh, this is a P. We'll do that again. What is the probability um, that I can trust my reason... Given naturalism and evolution, and he said, well, in light of the fact that, that naturalism and evolution can be successful without reason being based on truth, there's actually a, a really, really low probability, because any given belief could either be true or not true. We don't have a criteria for that. And so, um, then, if that's the case, um, you know, the, the, my belief right now, you know, um, that, that this um, fake cactus is here, and exists and is extended in time and space. Um, that's one belief um, that I'm trying to verify. Um, but in order to posit a, a system as complex as natural and naturalism and evolution, you're talking about stacking thousands of beliefs on top of each other. And so he said you kind of create a situation where it's like a 0.5 chance times 0.5 times 0.5 times 0.5, and it becomes like infinitely small percentage that you could claim something as complex as naturalism and evolution I mean, uh, uh, as complex as naturalism and evolution with the starting point, uh, with, with, with um, sorry, infinitely small that you can trust your region if you're also trying to bring naturalism and evolution in it. So he says there's essentially a defeater for this whole belief system because it, because it, it basically eats itself. Um, it's like it, it ends up cutting off the branch that it's sitting on. Now, um, if all of that uh, is a little bit like high-minded. Uh, I think you could actually make a very similar point um, by going back to the problem of freedom. Because um, if all matter, including organic matter, including people, is, e is, is, a, is a part of a closed system of cause and effect, you know, like, like if you ever heard of the, the Pavlov, Pavlov's, Pavlov's dogs experiment, you know, where he taught them to salivate by ringing a bell. 
and, uh, and you know, because he, he trained them. Every time that he fed them, he would ring a bell. And so um, a- after a certain amount of time, you could ring a bell and there could be no food or smell of food anywhere near. And they started salivating just because of the bell, because they've been trained in that sort of way. So it, it's sort of like that. We don't know chemically why we react the ways that we the, the ways that we do, but it doesn't have to be based on a belief that's actually true, um, or or if things are just subject to random chance, like the airplane flying in different directions, then we're still left with no ability to to step outside of the situation and discern whether it's true or false based on our reason. Um, so if Darwin's doubt is valid, as I think it's demonstrated to be by Plantinga and many others, then naturalism is not self-consistent as a worldview. For on the basis of naturalism, it's never, never reasonably, reasonable to suppose that naturalism is actually true. Um, so, um, uh, in other words, naturalism leads us to distrust our reason, the same reason that was used to posit this complex, complex naturalistic worldview, and thus the worldview is exposed as self-defeating. Um, this fact was recognized by many uh, since and before the time of Nietzsche, and it's given rise um, to a system of thought called postmodernism. Now, I'm going to actually address this much, much more briefly. Um, what is postmodernism? Obviously, post, uh, it's a postmodern worldview. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, um, interestingly, as I said, Kierkegaard was a Christian. He believed, um, he believed um, our only access to truth was by revelation. And so he believed it was essential that um, God came down and became a human being so that he could communicate with us from one subjective uh, being to another, although he was the subjective being that was still objective because he was the God-man. Um, that was, so the incarnation was really important for Kierkegaard. He's, he was the bridge between um, subjective man and, and the objective truth of God. Um, but postmodernists, uh, since Kierkegaard, have denied the existence of God, uh, mostly, and embraced a view... Um, that, that basically humans have no access to, to objective truth. Why is this? Um, basically, the long story of, of philosophy is, you know, somebody posits, they'll say, this is, this is my system for explaining truth and reason and God and gods and morality and, and everything about truth. And, uh, and, and isn't it great? Isn't it nice and shiny? And doesn't it work well? And then somebody comes along a couple generations later and says, that doesn't make sense at all because of this reason and this reason and that reason. But what does make sense is my system. And then they posit it, and, and people are like, ooh, that guy's really smart. That looks really shiny. And then somebody a few generations later, or maybe even in his lifetime, says, actually, no, that's not true. It can't be true because it contradicts itself in this way. But this is true. And then somebody says, no. And then somebody says, but this is true. And then somebody says, no, but this is true. And then basically what happens is human beings, now that we have a recorded history of this happening many times, started to become... Um, insecure that we were ever going to understand, that we were ever going to have a, a concept of truth um, that, uh, that, wasn't, you know, that, that wasn't able to be um, doubted and essentially eventually tossed aside. Um, I think postmodernism uh, might be the most popular worldview in our universities right now, and you guys already know a lot about it whether you realize it or not, so even if the language seems new, the basic ideas will sound familiar. So um, here's the core beliefs of postmodernism. Um, so, um, one, um, real truth is ultimately unknowable to us, and meaning is a human construct. 
So if real truth is ultimately unknowable to us, the only thing that we can do is construct some sort of alternate meaning in our own mind, like the guy who plays video games. All right. Two, since we don't have access to objective truth or meaning, communities and individuals construct stories. And when we view ourselves in the context of these constructive stories called narratives, it brings truth and meaning and order to human life. So truth is, is basically replaced by usefulness. Does your story work? Does it get you where you want to go? Um, so the naturalists tell their story, they would say, because the postmodernists doubt the naturalists too. They say the Christians tell theirs, the pantheists tell theirs, etc., etc. And since truth is relative, all stories have, are equally valid for the communities that live them out. Third, um, they say all narratives mask a play for power. Any one narrative used as a meta-narrative is oppressive and must be rejected. So this is a very Marxist position, um, and it certainly has a strong element of truth to it. Um, um, and, and, and really, every, you know, all the things we're talking about tonight have some sort of element of truth. Even if you disagree with one of these worldviews, you, you know, it's hard to deny that, that they're getting certain things right. Um, and basically, Marx said, um, you know, what, what religion does is it justifies the powerful in keeping themselves in power. Um, and so, I mean, you might think of actually like a classic example of this is like the caste system in Hinduism. It's like, I'm rich and I have power because of good things that I did in my past life. <laughs> and so that's why I'm here and that's why I have these power and that's why I have these privileges. And you're dying in a gutter and you're untouchable because you were born an untouchable because something you did in your past life. And that's why Mother Teresa actually had to go there because there was so little dignity given to these untouchables in the way that they were dying because it was assumed hey, they're just paying off their sins for a previous life. That's a pretty convenient system if you're sitting on top of the social ladder. Not a very consistent, not a very convenient if you're, if you're sitting at the bottom. So there's no denying that, that Marx has a point. But um, I think one thing that he, he doesn't um, take into account that um, maybe a religion can survive because it's true and it's good and it works. <laughs> um, that's, that's also a possibility. It's interesting because Christianity, um, uh, you know, it, one of the biggest critiques of religion in the history of humanity is Jesus. You know, so he kind of builds his own immune system and says this is oppressive. And in fact, if you want to know what the kingdom of God is like, um, and Jesus is the Messiah, he's the king. He's like, you know, the kingdom of God is is like a king that gets down on his knees and washes the feet of his disciples. You know, you know, you guys are arguing over who's the greatest, but you know, the greatest among you is the one who serves. Just as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That doesn't sound like that fits Marx, Marx's critique of religion. So, to, to just mention some critiques of, of some more critiques of postmodernism. Postmodernism tries to dis respond to naturalism's problem, loss of freedom, um, loss of morality, and loss of meaning, but ultimately it fails. And here's the reason why. Um, this is a very popular known critique of postmodernism. The idea, the idea, the postmodern idea that we don't have access to truth but can only tell stories is itself a statement of truth. How did we get access to that truth? Isn't that just another story? So it's, it's sort of like, um, um, I, I, I remember um, uh, in, this, in the movie Grumpy Old Men when the one guy gets mad at the other guy and he says, why don't you pull your lip over your head and swallow? <laughs> um, that's, that's sort of the critique. Uh, Postmodernism naturally pulls its own lip over its head and it swallows. Um, 
you know, you, you, you have, you guys might have heard that the famous parable of the blind man and the elephant that's used in naturalism. So it's this idea is there's a whole bunch of uh, blind men and they're all feeling the elephant and they're feeling different parts. And, and it's, it's supposed to be this idea that like everybody has a part of the truth. And if you could just combine everybody, then, then you'll get the full picture. So one blind man, you know, feels a tail and it, and it feels like a broom. He's like, Oh, an elephant's like a broom, and somebody feels the trunk, and they're like, oh, elephants, an elephant's like an, and, an anaconda, it's a snake, you know? Somebody feels the leg, and somebody says, oh, the, an elephant's like a tree. And, and the, this parable of the blind man and the elephant is, there's a king who's watching all this happen in the distance, and, and he's saying, actually, the truth is, if you put all that together. Now, um... That seems like, like a fairly reasonable thing, right? Um, but just a few critiques about that, all right? First, it assumes that God is silent. Now, what if the elephant himself removes their blindfolds and reveals to the people what he's really like? Because that's what Judaism and Christianity and Islam all claim. <laughs> They're all religions that rest on the idea that God himself has revealed himself. So that's not really doing business with the major world religions. Um, another thing, what if, what if the... Competing claims are not really different in an incomplete sort of way, but they actually contradict one another. So, for example, Christianity teaches that Jesus is the Messiah, and Judaism teaches that he's not. Now, both of those claims can't be, like, partly true. It's like, one's either true and one's false, right? Or, or whatever. Um, so that you can't, you can't just kind of have a partial truth when it comes to that. Um, and, and, and really... If we, it's, it's almost like um, in the postmodern world, we want to apply a special kind of reason to, to apply to religious matters that we would never apply to our practical life. Like if Alicia said, where do I go to pick up my kids? And I said, right out that door and walk about 50 yards and you'll find them. Um, and she did that and she was expecting to find her kids. Um, she wouldn't go out there and be like, oh, my kids aren't out here, but... Maybe he actually meant for me to go the, ap the opposite direction and climb the stairs. Like, maybe I should have, like, put the, like, composite of truth together. Maybe it's just, like, the other side of the coin. It's like, no, she'd be like, he's a jerk. Why did he send me out here into the night? You know? Uh, the child care workers are all gone, and it's become Lord of the Flies with my kids in this empty church. You know, what, what's going to go on? No. All right. Uh, getting a little bit out of hand with my analogy here. No, so... Um, so why do we treat religious truth as if it as if it operates in a completely different way? Like we can we 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 trust that people when they're giving us instructions or directions to something, we we trust that there's a, there's an actual truth behind what they're saying, and two things that are contradictory can't both be true, right? Um, and so um, what if what if that's that's what's going on um, with religious truth? A third problem um, with the parable is uncovered by asking the question. Well, where would you be in this illustration? So when you apply the parable um, to the issue of truth, would you be like um, one of the blind men, or are you the king? Right? So the dilemma is unsolvable, because if the postmodernist is like one of the blind men groping around, how does he know everyone else is blind and has only a portion of the truth? But if we're all blind, um, you know, how do you know that I'm mistaken unless you claim to be the all-seeing, all-knowing king? Right, so it, again, it, it ends up defeating itself. Um, just a, a couple of other uh, points about postmodernism. The rejection of any meta-narratives that places itself above all others is itself a meta-narrative that does just that. 
So this is the meta-narrative that trumps all other meta-narratives. Shouldn't we reject it? And in its most extreme form of skepticism, another critique arises, which is that um, it's an unlivable philosophy because beliefs are a practical necessity for our lives. Um, skepticism is, is an agnosticism to all matters of truth, and it's tempting. Um, there's many elements of this in postmodernism, but it's unlivable, uh, unlivable. And as I said, this arose from a school of thought in Hellenistic philosophy 2,500 years ago. Um, Piro, uh, who was the father of the school of the skeptics, was said to be so skeptical that he had to be led around by, uh, by other young men in his old age because he wasn't sure about the solidity of the ground. Right? <laughs> but there's a, sort of, there's a contradiction to that, right? Because the fact that he even lived till he was 90, pur was purported to live till he was 90 years old means that he had to, at some point along the way, like, move himself out of the way of a, of a carriage that was coming down the road, right? Um, you, can't, you can't live as if you have no beliefs and you're just completely skeptical. So for this reason, again, um, many, many postmodernists um, basically become practical natural, naturalists. Why? Because even if we believe we don't have access to the truth, we still have to act like we do. Um, and so just to round out the talk, therefore we can see that like naturalism, postmodernism is not rationally self-consistent and in its most extreme case, is simply an unlivable philosophy. And this is really the strongest philosophical claim that I want to make in this whole lecture, which is that these two atheistic worldviews are actually not rationally self-consistent. So they should be rejected. Why is this important? Why is this important? <laughs> uh, because if you're making a choice about what worldview you're going to adopt, self-consistency... Does it make sense even within itself? Should be the first thing that we look for. So James Sire, who wrote a book called The Universe Next Door, he gives a list of, of, of suggestions when you're, when you're trying to choose a worldview. He says, we should only adopt a worldview if it possesses the following characteristics. Inner coherence, it actually makes sense in, in and of itself. It doesn't um, claim something that ends up cutting off the branch that it's sitting on. Um, it's able to include the data, all the data reality offers, common sense, science, miracles, etc., if they occur. Um, thirdly, it adequately explains reality. And fourthly, it's, sub it's subjectively satisfying. This was Aristotle's view, that, that there should be some sense of, oh, this really makes sense on, in some, on some sort of core level for me as a human being existing in this world. So in answer to our initial question, is atheism reasonable? I contend that the answer is clearly no, um, at least not in the forms that are popular today. When you doubt the doubter, their own position comes up wanting. On the other hand, I would submit to you just as a teaser for next week that Christianity is rationally self-consistent and checks all the boxes that these atheistic worldviews are lacking. Uh, that will be, be my topic for next week as we examine two new worldviews, um, Buddhism and Christianity. And I'll ask the question, why choose Jesus among other options?